Welcome to Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Today's story, All He Surveys, Volume 1, Chapter 21. next raid went well. I was on a new ship, a light coaster named Budanak, which was a low-speed conjoining, roughly translating to the blood of all my enemies. New captain, too, a husky guy with a blonde crew cut going gray by the name of Dugor. This was childish and petty of me, but I've always had a prejudice against stout, blonde men, my dim view stemming from a bully of my youth who made life miserable for a formative year or so. Captain Dugor was not a bully, but I didn't know what kind of man he was for a while. He was quiet for the first week, though we spent hours together each day in planning meetings. His XO was a short, dark man named Berker fluent in my native tongue, but with a clipped way of talking, which he did completely and solely on the captain's behalf during that time. Dugor watched, though, very closely, and he assessed this rumored madman on his ship until he was more or less convinced, I suppose, that it was just a rumor. After that, he opened up with broken English, and I finally grew to like the guy. That was just a bonus, understand. We'd already hashed out the details of the next attack. These were professionals, not pampered noblemen. They were trained in the most immediate and final job in the galaxy. Liking or disliking me didn't even come into it. So, better than going well, the mission soared. We could have sent in drones with zero human oversight. It was a rimstay acting as a key supply depot, offering fuel, repairs, atmo recharges, and more to both the cadre's military vessels and those civvy armed merchanters they had pressed into service. It was largely owned by Butek Holdings ILLC, in which four of Piani's key allies held major stakes. We arrived and announced our intention to attack the station in 90 minutes. If the people aboard offered no resistance, they could leave unmolested. It sounded like a mad scramble over comm channels, but at the 82-minute mark, it was reported that the station was empty. We made a point of recording the station's commander announcing that fact, which we then distributed to every ship in system at the time, including those entirely unaffiliated with us, many of which were departing in a semi-panicked flurry. Once again, I wasn't in charge of gunnery. This time, I kept my distance entirely. These were actual military vessels, as opposed to hybrids like Zemo Haziz, and had experts in charge. The attack was coordinated by career officers and planners, and I did nothing more than let them do their jobs. 
Though ignorant of the weapon system's operational procedures, I at least understood most of what they were saying, because I'd been studying it. Terminology was key. If you wanted to be taken seriously, you had to know how to talk to serious people. But ho ho ho, how I itched to play with their hardware. Operational training, system layouts and structures, and other such information was generally classified and not taught at civilian gunnery training centers. My involvement with the mission amounted to nothing more than relating the objective. In this case, as with most others, to render the station useless to the enemy. They took it from there. I watched. I studied technical plans for military fire control procedures and hardware that I'd never had the opportunity to see in the past, and rather quickly, it began to make sense. Master of the guns, you have weapons free, came the order from the squadron commander. Master of the guns was an officer rank peculiar to the Empire that was either equal to or somewhere in the neighborhood of Major. Upon Budenak, this was a wire-thin fellow named Demian Crick, who had a face like a china doll's, smooth, even beautiful, with blank, shiny eyes, and an unchanging smile painted on it for the weird nobleman sitting in on squadron meetings. He was of a type I'd seen before. Discipline was in the guy's soul. He lived and breathed procedure, and whenever he encountered situations that didn't have any, he made up sensible ones on the spot and thereafter stuck to them like religion. I was told that his weaponry crews were fanatically loyal, and I saw nothing in the man to make me doubt it. Craig had achieved an impressive record in deep action against pirate and renegade noble forces. Renegades were second sons and third cousins with big ambitions but no political connections. Occasionally, such men grew frustrated over being forever seated at the kiddie table during all the big family gatherings and would flex their elastic band muscles out in space. If they stayed small, harrying the cargo shipments and other assets of rivals, legally or otherwise, they were sometimes thrown a bone and had their efforts rewarded with a dram more respect. If they felt like they had a score to settle and focused their bruised egos on the holdings of the family itself or one of its allies, they were invariably disowned. That's when men like Crake went to work. A total of only three missiles were fired at the Rimstay, and these from three different ships spaced around the structure. Craig and his team had chosen target points I wouldn't have gone for myself, and I would have been wrong. These were not MEW warheads, because they didn't need to be, not for professionals. The Rimstay just fell apart, like it had been held together with nothing more than good intentions. It was a beautiful thing to see, though likely anticlimactic to any viewer not in the know. It didn't involve gigantic balls of plasma nor bubbles of debris expanding outward at a hundred clicks per second. I saw then that my own efforts in this conflict had been messy and entirely reactive. This had been surgery. I called Crake on a private line and congratulated him but he didn't speak English, and apparently didn't have a translator running. 
I fumbled through a low-speak compliment, and he thanked me hastily before returning to work. Though all station personnel had supposedly been accounted for, at least 50 people had failed to make it to the hastily departing vessels before the deadline and hopped into tiny emergency lifeboats instead. They were taken aboard our squad's modular hauler. We had brought along a large passenger container unit for just this eventuality. It was akin to a floating motel, or maybe more like a sleepaway camp, amenity-wise. The survivors were given adequate, if well-guarded, berths, along with food and water. The rest of the squad returned to Benkata, while the hauler jumped directly to a neutral port where the prisoners were set free. That Rimstay Depot had been high on the list, but there were others like it and different types of targets entirely, and I pressed the commander to go down the list. Personally, I was in no hurry to return to home base and go through another round of pressing, admonishing, and finally insulting the Circle's apoplectic men of influence. I figured the squad could get more done if it stayed on the move. Bolstered by this latest success, but concerned over the shifty nature of our new logistics chain, courtesy of my barfly efforts, senior officers argued that we'd be in dire need of supplies in a few weeks, subjective time, and shouldn't undertake anything big until we were sure the resupplies were guaranteed. When we arrived at a friendly Tween Star Depot that was pretty far off the beaten path, set up as it was for righteous circle fuel top-offs, a recorded report from Syndra, stored in an encrypted communication server there, found its way to my rig. From it, I was able to forward a long list of waiting supply drops to Flight Commander Colonel Errol Jarno, provided by tramp freighters and no-account scalawags. These would be hard for cadre intelligence operatives to trace, unless they had fingers very deep into the RMA's transportation office, which recorded all registered flight paths for commercial starships, and the Imperial Shipping Regulatory Collective, which did similar work regarding oversight and direct tracking of cargo and transit throughout noble space, and if they were then cross-compiling all this data with circle ship movements. Details our enemies presumably didn't have, seeing as how they were classified. That level of penetration and deep analysis seemed unlikely, at least this early into things, so I felt like we were finally gaining traction. A couple of hops in a row, and our small squad stopped at a huge binary star system named Kazet. Kazet Alpha had no less than 11 ringed gas giants, a la Sol System's famous Saturn. There, hiding inside the ring of the largest of these planets, we found a cluster of automated cargo boxes waiting for us. An armored frame hauler that had enough DEWs to qualify it as a gunship did a series of free-fall resupply maneuvers to gather in the whole load, something the soldiers involved had only ever trained for as an emergency operation. It went awkwardly, but I figured practice would make perfect. With the officers somewhat satisfied that a clandestine network of tramp freighters was up to the task of keeping us in donuts and coffee, we moved on to a military transfer station in service to one Count Boy de Air, 
an early drinker of Lady Trisal's elixir of imperial dreams. Barely big enough to qualify as a high dock, it was simply designated Supply Depot 227-A3 and was currently a million or so kilometers away from a large residential space colony called Dargay Velve. 227-A3 must have had one angry commander, or an overtly proud one who figured his chance to prove his worth to Count Boyd de Ir had finally come, because we received a warm welcome. The depot possessed a half-dozen particle cannons and two big plasma lances mounted on mobile satellites in close orbit around it. Our intelligence showed the station had a normal crew complement of 82, and it was believed to possess a star jump engine of its own. 227-A3 was at least three hours from the nearest jump point, though, and we weren't inclined to let them get there. After a round or two of pot shots... We were able to chat with them for a few minutes, but they refused to stand down and refused to abandon the station. Then they stopped talking and opened fire again, this time on the striker squadron we dispatched to do an intimidating flyby. A chance hit caught and damaged one of the small combat vessels. It had to limp back to the frame carrier. That felt like a punch in the nose in response to a civilized overture. Crake dropped four missiles into vacuum, two facing the depot and two racing off obliquely. I had access to the inventory and knew what their payloads were. Again, no nukes. The ones fired directly at the station were heavily armored with medium-yield conventional warheads. Just one of those would be enough to disable the high dock and knock it out of its current orbit. Two would be a complete kill. But Crake knew his business, which not only included his guns, but also those of his enemies, and how they could be turned against them. The missiles on direct headings absorbed some of the concentrated fire, but the lances floating around the station were powerful little things, and by focusing one each on the incomings, they were able to cut through the armor and send the trucking cylinders rolling off and away. It was clear that only an expensive salvo could get by those Guardian guns. Actually, a couple of fast kinetic loads shrieking in from a high angle could do it too. The ones that Craig had sent off to arc around and back were each filled with approximately 5,000 polinium balls the size of a human fist. They came down at the station doing 60 Gs, then ejected their payloads out like shotguns. Not to add any appreciable velocity, which was academic at that point, but to give the grape shot just a little scatter, a little volume. The station uselessly fired on and destroyed the now empty missiles, which were just cartridges really, trailing behind that horrid metal rain. The lances tried to pick off the tiny projectiles, but succeeded in only touching a few here and there. The grape shot just kept on coming. Supply Depot 227-A3 disappeared in a cloud of hull fragments and a dusty flash of white-hot gases dispersing into the black. And just that fast, 82 people died. A million kilometers aren't a lot, all things considered. By the time we made the jump point, 
there were only histrionics from the witnessing space colony to be heard, squeaking over emergency channels through the silence of shocked space. This level of aggression is horrendous, FOMO! The man shouted in my eye view. There was no need for such blood. Now our enemies will retaliate. Already we are seeing a call for public boycotts of several key commercial operations. And I've even heard from Diallo Buentaric, who told me to expect sanctions from the College of Families at their next conclave. Sanctions! In all my time as patriarch of the Drebiet family, I have never... It was a recording, so he wasn't insulted when I swiped it off. And anyway, I had four more to go through from other circle members. I saved time and deleted them unopened. I had told everyone from the start what I was going to do, and all I'd been hearing since then was how surprised and horrified they were. Some of the noise was designed as personal insulation in case we screwed up in our raids, but that didn't account for this guy's apoplexy. It was distasteful and confusing, so I chose to ignore him and anyone else who talked that way. The operation was running without their funding or oversight, and apparently without their blessing. Elmond sent an encrypted message along via his cousin, who in turn forwarded it to me through one of the Silver Flare couriers. It was to the effect that he had gotten three more families to join us who had previously been standing apart. He'd also heard from the Emperor through various back channels and had received a tacit nod. Keep it military only, which included civilian war effort operations, and the big man would remain comfortably deaf to the complaints of our enemies. Such a message from the halls of power was short of actual approval and could be denied at any time, but it established the boundaries of behavior. Emperor Augustine was effectively stating that if the good lady could get neutralized without any direct imperial involvement, it would be appreciated. When the leader of a vast interstellar empire indicated that he would be grateful to you for something, well... That would be more than enough for most nobles to go to war. And it was likely the carrot needed to finally get a few straggler families on board, if they happened to have been tipped off. You know, in private. Maybe poolside? Elmond's strength didn't seem to be in keeping secrets secret. It was in making secrets useful, having them work for him and produce results. I suspected that I was one of those, or had been. Elmond, the charming patriarch, had whispered in ears, gossiped quietly, alluded obliquely, and managed to create a boogeyman with which to frighten other families. Piani hadn't known who I was on the night of the dance, not in any context. An on-the-fly data lookup didn't really count. But by now, she'd be wondering why this Estarun of such dark rumor had acted like a chubby little boar, tripping over his feet, all silly and obsequious, instead of just killing her there and then. Why, 
the Vernay's monster had given her any choice whatsoever. And maybe, maybe, she was now just the slightest bit worried that she had made the wrong one. I was sitting in on the operational meetings for the raids by this point, but had little to say. These people were experts, functioning at a level beyond my own. The key to success can often lie in knowing your own limits and trusting in those who exceed them. I had chosen the targets, yes, but even these were now subject to reassessment. Another automated production facility that had been high on the list was moved to a lower priority when reports came in that a spy ring back on Bancada had been unearthed, running through the signals office, which handled encrypted and secure communications. It was looking to have been an operation from the start, so any major decisions made by the Circle were now to be considered compromised. Our successes thus far could be chalked up to speed and aggression, but it certainly explained how a welcoming committee of four armed merchanders had been so timely and well-positioned above the Gabrochka factory. They had been scrambled there, but if we'd gotten to the depot even an hour later, we might have found a lot more in wait. We go after their bellies next, I proposed, and the comment turned virtual heads at the meeting. I held up a small box of chopped chard, frozen and sweating in the heat of my office. I've spent time down in the holds. I've noticed that all the cartons of frozen foods have this same four-digit routing number in the third selection category. See it here? There's one set of numbers, a dash, then another set, then a dash, than these four. In the civilian world, that means something specific, so I researched your military protocols and found that it follows a similar organizational pattern. Not one person on the conference call interrupted, and every eye was following the visual pickups on their end of things, or seemed to be. That kind of attention from these kind of people was very far from insignificant, so I went on. All the frozen meals on this ship and upon two of the others in the squadron were run through one particular staging area. The others have gone through different, though similar, locations. Military depots specifically set up for distributing food and medical supplies. They possess very large refrigerated storage facilities. It's a specialized thing requiring specific training. Specific doesn't mean difficult, though, and such personnel can be quickly replaced. The facilities, however, are another matter. The enemy must have years of shelf-stable foodstuffs in regular storage throughout space, one of the leaders observed. Of course they do, and for the frozen stuff as well. Long-term storage is the sixth set of numbers right here, see it? They're different, which means different locations. After taking out the refrigeration warehouses, we do one or two raids on those facilities as well. Lady Trasal's people will analyze our strategy and see a crisis in the making. They'll double or even triple security around their storage housing, pulling fighting forces off the line to do so, or hiring mercenaries, which is expensive. If we work hard, they'll have to start using civvy supply services to fill in any gaps, just as we are. Odds are... They'll run those in convoys, utilizing war vessels as escorts that are badly needed for actual combat. 
That will be the military mindset, so that's what her experts would advise. I have professional experience that allows us an unconventional approach to our logistics, but I doubt there's anyone in the cadre's command structure with a similar background. If they're protecting their own supply lines, then that will allow our contracted haulers to move around even more freely. This isn't about starving the enemy, though they'll think that's what we're after. It's about making them sweat, hitting their wallets and straining their resources, all while increasing the free action of our own. It makes sense. Gavin Koremka spoke up, he of the sightseeing tours and now senior pilot of our appropriated striker group. We're short on spare parts for our birds. I've been assured that the, uh, alternative supply routes now in place will be able to remedy the situation, but there will still be a delay. Attacking cadre depots like this would be a risk, though one worth taking, in my view. If we can harry their supply lines, they might be tempted into rash action. Action, such as appropriating neutral civilian supplies. And that would be piracy, I agreed. If it happens, I know one guy from the Alliance right now who could make a few calls and get some diplomatic pressure put on the throne to step in. Ain will not be quiet about military forces preying on the civilian sector this close to the border. There'd be a buildup of fleet assets to ensure the issue remained an imperial one. Actually, that's probably happening anyway. Commander Bargat shifted uncomfortably in his chair, and even shook his head a bit. He was skipper of a heavy coaster named Morta Pondere, which was a Seishan word directly translating into dead weight. That would have been an insult to the vessel and its crew in English, but it was actually referencing a famous noble space military poem of some long-dead man of letters. The entire line went something like, I will strike at my enemies, and they shall be rendered as naught but dead weight for their porters and laborers to carry home in ignominy. It didn't exactly trip off the tongue, but over the years it had become part of the texture of the Empire's quiltwork culture. So much so that the phrase, Morta Pondere was completely understood to be an insult directed at someone you didn't like. Perhaps a better translation of the ship's name, in context, would have been, Your loved ones will be receiving your carcass. This is hardly sounding like a war of retribution, the commander remarked, looking unconvinced. This family's honor is at stake. Its position in the Empire. Are the long-term interests of the Khajiit line really best served by such nebulous guerrilla tactics? That's a fair question, I conceded, mostly because the man had couched it in a reasonable tone that didn't get my hackles up. He wasn't put out or being arrogant. It was a concern over here, and one I had to acknowledge. This probably doesn't jibe with the image of gallantry that you had in mind when you joined up. I'm sorry about that, but we're at a distinct disadvantage here. Lady Trasal has had years to plot and scheme. We've had weeks. Well, months now, but the point stands. We want the cadre to back down quickly, so that the Khajiit name, assets, social status, and political influence come through this intact. 
Once we've ensured the survival of the Kamatosa and her children, which includes the future Kamo, as you know, we can decide what honor or expediency demand. That seemed to mollify him and the others thinking like him, at least for the moment. There was nothing left then but to go after the food. The first raid was easy, beyond easy. We popped over to a supply depot in a system I didn't know. It was built into a large asteroid that took about 800 years to swing through a wide elliptical loop around a shabby red dwarf. We announced ourselves and our intentions and gave the troops working there an hour to clear out. Then we bombed the place with fusion reaction devices until the rocks split in half. The second raid, which we jumped directly to next, went nearly as well, though the depot commander had ordered kinetic interposal weapons to be used to knock out our missiles. These guns weren't of much use against armored military vessels, so no one was very impressed by that show of defiance. Morta Pondere just opened up with its own guns, which were actually quite good against armored targets, and more than enough for standing structures like warehouses. The troops didn't get away from that one. But they'd been given the chance, and a stupid leader got them all killed. The only other refrigeration depot in our neck of the woods was located in a well-trafficked and well-defended star system called Me'ekal. Specifically, it was situated on an armored high dock a few hours into the gravity well. It seemed like a bad idea to try for it at first, since it was a tough nugget, defended by adjacent gunnery satellites. After a little thought, though, I had the idea of putting a tactical nuke inside a deep freeze container and sending it to them. All military and most civilian settlements had sensors in active use to pick up on the presence of rogue atomic weapons. This was a refrigeration facility, though, and that meant we had options. I did some quick research and then presented my idea to the captain and other officers. We take a small, tactical weapon and place it inside a shielded container, specifically one of the magnetic transport cans that physics labs use to ship their samples around. Those things don't let much in the way of detectable particles out. I've handled them before, working cargo on different commercial runs. They're small, but I know for a fact there are low-yield devices that could fit. To take out a warehouse station, we need nothing bigger. Then we get some of that spray foam radiological insulation. Uh, what's the brand name? Ground Zero? I think that's it. People use it to beef up specialty transport bays and commercial shipping so they can pass RMA inspections. It's not perfect, but it does work. We just fill the space around the science container inside the refrigeration unit with that stuff and let it cure. On their own, neither would be adequate to fool military radiation sensors, but together, I think they can. And, to blunt any annoying human curiosity, we mark the unit with a biohazard warning and state on the bill of lading that it contains fecal samples. They'll find a place to put that thing and then no one will touch it again unless they have to. Does it run on a timer or do we trigger remotely? Was a question several had. Remote, I argued. We have it rigged to a receiver listening for the arming code. 
We jump in, send the depot the message to evac, while simultaneously broadcasting the code. Then we jump out and watch the news. Jumping in puts the ship at risk, Commander Bargat countered, though more as a devil's advocate than as one opposed to the idea. True, I replied, but there could easily be a holdup in the shipping process somewhere. We don't want it going off when or where it's not supposed to. What if we show up, announce the attack, send the code, but it's not there yet because of one of those holdups? Good thought. Okay, uh, how about this? We contact the depot through normal channels, posing as the final destination on the shipping label, asking if it's arrived there yet. If not, could they let us know when it is? If so, could they please hold on to it, since our own biohaz freezer is currently under repair? We wait for a reply. If they have it, we're a go. If they don't, we wait some more. There were finer points of the plan that other, more exacting people saw too, and these forced certain modifications to the process and timing of it. To be honest, though I had talked a good game, I wasn't really married to the idea, but no one came up with another that amounted to more than just leaving the place alone, so it all proceeded apace. I felt we had to make the cadre turn to the civilian sector for their supplies. I needed the good lady to put at least part of her control, and therefore power, into civvy hands where my own experience could count for something. And if they had to start laying in new contracts, that meant dipping into her allies' coffers. Once good money was being thrown after bad, we'd see who her friends really were and go after them next. If everything had gone to schedule, we could have seen the depot destroyed by the end of the same week we put the operation into play. Nothing ever goes according to plan, so it took nearly three weeks to finally get confirmation that our crate of supposed excrement was sitting in an ice room at the Meikal station, waiting for us to give them the go-ahead to send it out. We spent those 20 days doing sorties on general military storage facilities owned or operated by enemy families. We stayed clear of weapon dumps and rolled in on stations holding supposedly non-critical materiel, such as toiletries, office supplies, and, of course, food rations. We racked up one complete success and three partials. The partials didn't mean much nor even did the success. It was the attempt that mattered, the attention we were paying to places that held crates of ready-to-eat foods, powdered and canned drinks, and emergency meal replacement bars. It was the hate we were seemingly pouring into their food that made all the time-filler attacks, no matter their success rates, equally as important. For the big op, I decided to go in myself using one of the Silver Flare couriers, given a new paint job and a bogus transponder. The enemy was unlikely to fire upon a messenger out of hand, even one they couldn't quite identify. The tiny ship had a normal crew complement of two, three in a pinch, and I pinched. Silver Flares were agile little things, but virtually unarmed. The single onboard multi-spectrum laser in the nose was rigged to the pilot's council. 
The crew of the ship were civilians, so they were replaced by two of the striker pilots for this, since it was a run at the enemy. The primary pilot was a slight woman named Lieutenant Fulquet, and the other, a beefy fellow named Lieutenant Golgona. Fulquet was senior and in charge. She saw me as a civvy specialist integral to the mission. Objectively, anyone could have done what I was there to do, but this was going to happen, or not, on my word alone. So maybe she was right. Either way, I was along for the ride, sleeping through the subjective time of our star jump in the top level of one of the ship's tiny bunk-bed-style freeze tubes, until it was just a few hours before the trip's end. I waited on a crash couch off to one side, behind the good lieutenant and her wingman in the cockpit. I waited. I dozed. I waited some more. Finally, the return to real space was approaching. Fulquet ordered restraining harnesses on. Then she told us to get ready. Minutes of quiet, of calmness, and then a countdown. I listened to her soft voice with my eyes closed. Transition in three, two, one. Stomach punch, and the entire universe unpacked itself from the center of my torso. Code SIG is broadcasting, said Golgona, who also did comms, computers, in-flight repairs, and whatever else the other one didn't. Repeating the burst now, they'll definitely pick it up. I have challenges from four, check that, five military vessels, the small woman at his side announced blandly, like she was reading normal status reports. Looks to be three fighter boats, one Cascade-class fast cutter, and one, I don't know, maybe a line cruiser. Whatever it is, it has a targeting lock on us already. Probably for DEW, probably a particle cannon. A gun like that takes a minimum of 50 seconds to come online and utilize targeting parameters. Time for my spiel, I said, nodding to Golgona, who opened up a general radio channel. He adjusted it a bit to counter for interference, which might have been natural or the beginnings of communications jamming from one or more of the enemy guard ships. The husky man slid out a mic pickup the size and shape of an artist's pencil and passed it back. Fulquet swiped at a hollow display in front of her eyes and said, More enemy guns confirmed. We are being painted by four sources now. There's a button on the side, the other said, with the same level of calm as his commanding officer. I found the tiny bump and pressed. This is Familian Cano Ijac de Santos of Famia Vernes, currently aligned with the Cajet military forces under command of Admiral Bestero Dendica in the name of the legal Interpatria Comatosa Buona Cajet. Dendica had been nominated and appointed in my absence. I didn't know him, but I knew his name and could throw it around. Your depot will undergo an atomic attack in approximately one hour. You have that much time, and very possibly less, in which to evacuate all personnel. This is not a joke or idle threat. It is a fact, and it will happen. Twenty seconds until probable weapon alignment from the first gun, the commander announced. They will fire then. One hour, and then your station becomes vapor, I spoke into the pencil 
trying hard to emulate the woman's reserve and failing. This is your only warning. I unclicked the mic button, nodding at the lieutenant, who, with eyes over her shoulder, watching for exactly that signal, swiped two fingers through her floating controls without even looking. Once again, I swallowed the entire universe down, down into my guts, down where only fear had the power to endure. We were away, leaving behind nothing but a countdown. You have been listening to All He Surveys, Volume 1, a Star Drifter novel written and read by David Collins Rivera. This story is copyright 2022 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called Icor by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The All He Surveys theme is a piece called Blossom by Edward Malov and is licensed through tribeofnoise.com. This story is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead nor any particular place or situation. Any similarities to such are purely coincidental. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. You can also check out my site, davidcollinsrivera.com, where you'll find everything Star Drifter, including more audio novels and stories, the Star Drifter tabletop role-playing game, podcasts, newsletters, and more. Stop by, won't you, and drop me a line. Thank you for listening. Take care. <laughs>